Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Kim Doyle. Hi, everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. John is not with us this week, but he will be back next week. All right, Kim. I think I'm going to take it away. You are going to take it away. As people may have been noticing the unfolding scandal involving uh, Judge Dyson Hayden, um, who was appointed by the Abbott government to oversee the Royal Commission into Union Busting, euphemistically titled the Royal Commission into Trade Union Governance and Corruption. People may have noticed that he's been involved in a scandal. He was billed as a guest speaker at a Liberal Party fundraiser um, and he accepted the invitation. So the invitation was to give the Sir Garfield Barwick Address uh, and it even featured, this invitation, a Liberal Party logo. It also stated, all too explicitly, that all, all proceeds from this event will be applied to the state electioning campaign um, and that checks should be made payable to the Liberal Party of Australia, the New South Wales division. So few it hints there, few hints. A few hints. Um, emails show that Justice Hayden took nearly 24 hours to cancel a scheduled speech after being reminded that it was being organised by the Liberal Party, which should have been obvious from all the logos. However, the invitation for Justice Hayden's address was first proposed in April, a full three months before Bill Shorten's appearance before the Commission. The invitations were made by the Liberal Party, so this is no mistake, as the Liberals are trying to claim. Mm-hmm. This caused Hayden to go into a panic, and he abruptly is- excused himself on two occasions from uh, Commission proceedings yesterday. On the, f- the first occasion at 10am, 10, 10 Hayden called a five-minute adjournment after being approached by a staff member during the hearing. He said, I need to adjourn for an important problem that has just arisen. A short time later, at 10.53, the commissioner called for another unexplained adjournment. He said, another problem has arisen that I must attend to. If it is convenient, we might take the morning tea adjournment now. So he's not exactly um, very good at winging it, I think. (laughs) The Royal Commission's media office could not be contacted before it put out a statement at 11.22am which said Hayden would not be delivering the Sir Garfield Barwick address. And his excuse is... Well, Barwick, he was an old bastard. Oh, aren't they all? Yes, right. <laughs> I suppose there's a redundant comment. Go on. Uh, but he, his excuse was that he apparently didn't realise that it was a Liberal fundraiser and as soon as he... So he's a thick judge, is he? Yes, I mean, that's almost as good as being a corrupt judge, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. But uh, Labor Party MPs rushed to the House of Representatives um, in an attempt to have Justice Hayden removed from his role following the revelations. Tony Burke attempted to suspend standing orders to move a motion urging the commissioner to disqualify himself, but the motion was unsuccessful because, unfortunately, the government commands a majority. Mm -hmm. And it's been suggested that Commissioner Hayden has breached uh, judicial guidelines. According to a guide to to judicial conduct published for the Council of Chief uh, Justices of Australasia, and I quote, 
It is expected that, on appointment, a judge will sever all ties with political parties. An appearance of continuing ties, such as might occur by attendance at political gatherings, political fundraising events, or through contributions to a political party, should be avoided. So that's actually fairly explicit. You would think so. Um, And on the topic of commissions, because it's actually quite obvious from the start that Hayden's appointment was political, he's a known conservative. Um, and the, Well, you need a known conservative to bash the Unions Commission. Well, exactly. And as ACTU Assistant Secretary Tim Lyons pointed out last year, the last Liberal Prime Minister who didn't find time to hold an anti-union inquiry was Billy McMahon. Uh, so I don't know what he was doing. He was obviously asleep <laughs> on the job or something. That's right. Well, he wasn't there for that long. No, no, didn't... Um, Murdoch um, was wanted him gone. I can't remember that. I know that he had the uh, had the uh, uh, charisma of a dead fish, right? <laughs> and the only thing notable about him was that his uh, glamorous wife would appear with um, vast amounts of leg showing. This was seemed to be what defined his regime. Because oh. every time, well, that's you, not enough really to get you. Well, in. it wasn't quite enough to win the election. No. Tony Abbott was instrumental in setting up um, the commission before this last one, the Howard government's 2001 Coal Royal Commission into the building and construction industry. Malcolm Fraser, who is now beloved by many so-called smaller liberals for his stance on refugees, managed to organise two, so he was a busy bee. Uh, The 1980 um, Constigan Commission into the Federated Ship Painters and Dockers Union and the 1981 inquiry into the building and construction industry unions, uh, which was the beginning of the end for the old BLF, the Builders Labourers Federation. And actually with these... Which was attacked by the Labour Party. Which was then, yeah, destroyed by the... Yeah, deregistered them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually out of these commissions, usually what happens is that a whole lot of corruption by the bosses is exposed. And really they haven't got anything from these commissions. Well, that's what happened with the inquiries under Fraser, that... It revealed more um, bottom-of-the-harbour schemes that were utterly corrupt. And so the people who came out from that commission wasn't the, looking bad, wasn't the unions, but the employers. Mm. Well, they just... And then the results get shoved under the carpet. Well, of course, just, that's not what they wanted to find. Just used as an ideological weapon in the mm. meantime. Mm. Well, its very existence is meant to be some sort of indictment of the unions. And so the rationale behind... Hayden's appointment to the current witch hunt was completely transparent from the beginning, as I said. During a 1989 inquiry for the Garnier coalition government, I'm not sure if I've pronounced that properly, but Hayden proposed that unions should be structured and policed by the corporate regulator, which would now be ASIC, under a system derived from corporate law rather than a system um, separate of industrial relations courts. So the last time um, Hayden's attendance at a function raised eyebrows was when he gave a lecture at the Quadrant function in October 2002, and Quadrant is one of those famous right-wing journals, Mm -hmm. Um, before his appointment to the High Court the following year. So he gave it the year before he was appointed. And at the time, his speech was largely described as a job application to John Howard, uh, which John Howard obviously accepted. So in the media conference uh, yesterday, Labor's Mark Dreyfus clearly foreshadowed court action that might force Hayden to stand down, and he called on the commissioner to quit before being dragged through the federal court. And it seems that more of Abbott's attack dogs, 
Bishop was the other week and mm-hmm. now Hayden um, are coming back to bite him. So let's hope that um, all the scandals continue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that would be neater. Um, I was going to talk a bit about um, the Wharfies dispute at Hutchinson, but did you want to go first? No, no, no. We'll deal with yours and then gives me 15 minutes clear to... So go ahead. <laughs> to deal Tim. with Chris. Yes, to deal with me. Um, so people may or may not have heard that dock workers um, who were sacked last week by text message and email have actually won back their jobs, which I think happened yesterday in a um, court ruling. So for now, the federal court has ordered the temporary a temporary injunction against 97 redundancies by Hutchinson's Ports Australia. So the judge, Daryl um, uh, Ragley, ruled in favour of the Maritime Union of Australia's urgent petition against the sackings, which were to come into effect today on the basis that Hutchinson failed to properly consult with its workforce over the restructure. So texting people at midnight or whatever is not Not properly, quite, not, not quite, quite yeah. Yeah. And it's just absolutely horrible. Can, can you imagine getting a text message in the middle of the night and having to tell your partner that you've just been sacked? Well, because they got a text message saying sort of check your emails and then an email saying don't come back into work. Nice, um, nice. Nice, yeah. Old Hutch- style. Yes. And Hutchinson's ports, although people may not have heard, them, heard about them, are actually the largest container um, terminator operator in the world. Although they don't have a big presence in Australia. They're trying to break into the Patrick's DP world duopoly that right, exists right. in Australia. Um, and what they want to do basically is to automate a lot of the container container um, stevedoring um, and get rid of their permanent unionised workforce. Oh. <laughs> so it's a lot. It's a lot easier to automate um, container ports, but much more difficult when you're dealing with wood chip with and fertiliser. Yes. Yeah, because yes. you have to unload them with bobcats and so on. So this is what the union is fighting against. And the judge described um, as incomprehensible um, a text message that was sent to workers at eleven. It was at eleven p.m. on the Thursday night. So that's there's no way that you can possibly count that as consultation. No. Um. So the picket um, lasted seven days, so the MUA didn't um, take this line down, um, and the picket was actually in defiance of a fair, war- fair work order to return to work. And this was an old-fashioned, nothing-in-nothing-out picket. Uh, so on the 9th of August, dozens of trucks were turned away by workers and their supporters. Good, good. And um, this is what... Joe Deacon, the Assistant Secretary of the MUA Sydney branch, had to say. He said, as far as we're concerned, there will be no trucks coming in or out of the place until the company sits down with the union, which it seems that's what they've managed to achieve. Um, And a freight vessel, the um, Captain uh, Tasman, which was due to unload at the terminal on the morning of August 10th, was actually sent back to sea unloaded. Right. Which is very significant. That would cost... Um, it could cost millions of dollars, yes, really. Of course, of course. Um, so the union put out a call for support, and many unions and groups responded. And the MUA has a long history of backing campaigns for social justice, including the Redfern Aboriginal Tent Embassy, the campaign to save uh, Millers Point, uh, which is public housing in Sydney, which was traditionally under o- yeah under threat and traditionally occupied by the families of wharfies and workers. Right. Um, and this uh, solidarity has um, been returned to them. Um, and so they've had workers from the other two companies operating at terminals at 
Botany Bay, which is in Sydney. Um, they've come to the picket line. Um, they had one, at least, well, quite a few workers come down and take time off to join them on the picket line. Um, and one wharfie said, I'm here to support the hutch workers. We're all wharfies. It's important that we stick up for each other. And if this fails, we're all stuffed, which is... Never true words. Exactly. Um, but it's, I suppose it's a, it's a small victory because the company is obviously going to continue to try and get rid of its permanent and unionised Well, workers. it's a sign of workers fighting back, and that's got to be a joy to our ears. Exactly, and there's been a number of... Um, well, this week there was also the dispute at the Melbourne... Um, the Woolworths Melbourne distribution. That's right, it's still going on at Leopard. I think, I think it's, it's wound up now, but it's it was a very, very brave fight. Um, in both cases, workers were willing to defy the law, which is exactly the kind of unionism and militancy that we need. Absolutely. Well said, well said. Well, as you probably realise, both in the United States and in Australia, both parties are neoliberal parties. That is, they adopt the viewpoint that the market is everything and that workers have to fit in with that. And this has meant growing inequality, repression of workers' interests, decline of their purchasing power, etc. Now, overseas, unfortunately, we've got to go to find two examples in the Western world where this shell of the neoliberalism is beginning to crack. And through the cracks, the feelings of ordinary people who are protesting at the way their lives have gone are starting to emerge. And I want to briefly deal with both of them. In England, there's a... Of course, the Labour Party was roundly defeated. It had a neoliberal agenda. It had people like Tony Blair, who supported the war in the Middle East and acted like the Howard government did here. But so there's a big contention for who's going to be the next Labour leader. And there's a bloke called Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn. And he's shaking things up because for the first time, he's putting socialist ideas to the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party wouldn't know a socialist idea if it squirted in the ear, at least for decades. But this is, this is opening, it's a breach in the neoliberal fence, so to speak, uh, for the first time since Beninism in the 1980s, he's revived about a debate about the Labour Party and the left. And uh, it reminds us of the early part of the 19th century, when the Labour Party, uh, 20th century, when the Labour Party was forming and uh, Lenin was commenting on it. And there were some, uh, some things are the same as they were then. The revolutionary left in Britain at the time was relatively weak, as it is today, and scattered amongst several organisations, which it is today. And the elements that would join the Labour Party were heterogeneous. Now, there's two points that Lenin makes very clearly. The first is that we have to welcome every development, however partial, that will mean an advance for the class organisation and class consciousness of the workers. Anything that gets the workers to think of themselves as workers rather than Australians or whatever is good. The second twin pole of Lenin's ideas was on the need to construct an open and independent revolutionary organisation. So you do both things at once. You must have an independence from these parties but at the same time be able to respond to developments within these mass parties. And we look forward to the day when this will happen in the Australian Labor Party, though there's no sign of it whatsoever. Yeah, maybe we'll have to build another one. Well, I think <laughs> And then respond to it. <laughs> I, then, they, then something might happen within the Labor Party. That's true. Uh, Lenin took as his starting point the criticisms that Marx and Engels had made of socialists in England. 
especially those of the Social Democratic Federation. They claim, Marx and Engels, that this was far too isolated from the Labour movement. In other words, it was intellectuals that had no connection, actually, with the Labour Party. They accused the British socialists, who were separate from the, the mass of the people, that they transformed Marxism into a dogma, into a rigid orthodoxy that they regard as a symbol of faith and not a guide to action. Where would we be today, uh, says Engels, had we, from 1864 to 73, insisted on working together only with those who proclaimed themselves adherents of our programme? In other words, you've got to work, in order to drive class consciousness, you've got to work wherever that class consciousness appears, even if it's not of your home brand. It's easy to be a revolution, says Lenin, easy to be a revolutionary when revolution flares up. It's much more difficult and much more useful to be a revolutionary when conditions for direct, open, really mass and really revolutionary struggle have not yet matured, like in Australia. That is to be able to defend the interests of the revolution by propaganda, agitation and organisation, like in Australia where there's not a revolutionary situation. At that, at that time, Lenin suggested that the Communist Party should affiliate to the Labour Party, and that was possible in those days, obviously not possible now, and that's what they did. Lenin's insistence wanted to avoid ultra-left sectarianism. He was only in favour of affiliation to the Labour Party as long as the Communist Party had complete organisational and political freedom to attack the leaders of the Labour Party. And that's the two propositions that I started off with. One, welcome every progressive development that happens within these mass parties like the Labour Party. And secondly, mainly maintain the independence of your revolutionary organisation in order to attack the reformists of the Labour Party. Lenin's opponents said that if the Communist Party attempted to affiliate, they would be driven out by the right wing. Lenin said this would be a good thing. And indeed, this is what eventually happened. Lenin thought this approach was necessary because of the very peculiar nature of the Labour Party. At that time, as is today, I'm quoting Lenin here, the Labour Party is led by bourgeois elements who are social traitors. From this viewpoint, which is the only correct viewpoint, the Labour Party is not a political workers' party, but a thoroughly bourgeois party, because although it consists of workers, it's led by reactionaries and the worst kind of reactionaries at that. Lenin's whole approach was designed to put the revolutionary vanguard of the class into a dynamic relationship with the rest of the class. So isolating yourself from the class is not an answer, even if you're claiming that it's to preserve your purity. <coughs> what we want here is cooperation between the vanguard of the working class, those who are already militants, and the rest of the workers, the rearguard. We demand, therefore, that the British Communist Party should serve a link between the party, that is a minority of the working class, and all the rest of the workers. Of course there's dangers in this approach. Uh, the opportunists would emphasise the cooperation and play down the revolutionary demands in order to try and win adherence within the Labour Party. But we're seeing a development in England to the left of neoliberalism that is uh, threatening the, the monopoly that neoliberalism has. This hasn't happened in Australia yet, um, but we look forward to the day where it inevitably will happen. There's too much discontent in the working class in this country for this not to happen. And when it happens, we'll be there egging, egging it on.
What has been, do you know what the response of the Blairites has been to... Complete hostility. And the Guardian newspaper, for example, has come out and put editorial after editorial fighting this Corbyn character because he's advanced, he's... He's breaking up the nice, cosy, neoliberal chit-chat between the Liberals and the Conservatives, where Mm. they essentially support each other. And so The Guardian, being a bourgeois liberal paper, is attacking Corbyn uh, relentlessly. He's uncouth, is he? Oh, he's uncouth. And uncouth is the least of his problems. The other example, of course, (coughs) is in America, where last night, or the night before last, more than 100 people attended 3,500 meetings in all 50 states to watch a video cast of Bernie Sanders and to begin to organise his on-ground campaign. Now, he's a contender for the presidency. Now, he's never going to get there because he's not a multi-billionaire and doesn't represent their interests. Uh, But there are increasing numbers of young people in America who are starting to break with the Democrats and the Republicans, both of which are neoliberal. The market comes first. The interests of capital come first. Both <coughs> capitalists, They're out both. and out capitalists. Yeah, uh, parties. Now, Sanders is calling for a political revolution against the billionaires and, and calls to people who believe in public health care for all, higher free education and improving the lives of working people. By and large, those in attendance to these meetings had no interest in the Democratic Party. They know what it's like. When in late April... The independent senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, who'd long called himself a socialist, announced that he would run for the presidential party primary. No one had any idea what the response would be. Most people thought he would be entirely ignored. He's the only independent in Congress and the only national public official who calls himself a socialist. The response to his candidacy has been nothing short of phenomenal. In the historic liberal city of Madison, Wisconsin, 10,000 people turned out to hear him decry the billionaires and call for greater economic equality. Would Sanders be able to rally support in Republican red states of middle America as well? Well, that question was answered on July the 18th when he attracted 11,000 people in Phoenix, Arizona, and then on July the 19th when 8,000 people turned up in Dallas, Texas. Which you can imagine how progressive that city would be. Um, Hillary, we might note by contrast why that's so remarkable, is that Hillary Clinton's largest rally has only attracted 5,500 people. Hmm. She's not inspiring anyone, is she? Well, absolutely not. Many agree with Sanders' fundamental message that banks and corporations have taken over the political system and made it serve their interests. These people are supporting Sanders as a protest against the corporate agenda of both the Republicans and the Democrats. He's not as popular as Hillary Clinton, but he's done much better than anybody had even wildly imagined. So in terms of fundraising, of course, he's not as strong as his opponents. Uh, Clinton and the Republicans, such as Jeb Bush, have the backing of big financial donors, banks, corporations and the 1% of the very wealthy while Saunders has mainly received small donations from individual donors. Jeb Bush, for example, in the first quarter, raised $103 million, whereas Sanders raised 15 Right. Did but it you? sounds like he has more active support of people actually getting out on the streets, which is a much uh, better indicator of support and sentiment, really. Well, it's, it shows support amongst ordinary mm. people. Um, and Sanders, of course, he's not uh, he's not what a pure socialist 
or even a consistent socialist, but he's a new development in the United States and we've got to welcome that. He's failed to speak out in favour of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, in his earliest position he tried to be both for the cops and the blacks. But he's, like, given that one away because it's not a, a tenable position. Uh, the problem is emphasis, em- his emphasis on economic equality, which is a good thing, has failed to take into account the issues of racism, discrimination, exclusion and violence. His program doesn't even mention African-Americans. He's not put black issues at the centre of his politics, but this is changing. His greatest weakness, however, is his foreign policy. While it's true that he voted against the war to liberate Kuwait and voted against the Iraq War of 2002, on the other hand, he supported Clinton's airstrikes on Kosovo and the war on Afghanistan. So, On what grounds? Who knows? Who oh. knows? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But it's probably not unexpected that the first developments outside the neoliberal consensus, there would be inconsistencies. Yeah. That someone is not going to emerge a Lenin or a Trotsky from this, they're going to march very, very flawed. Well, he's sort of, is, is he more an independent than a, he's not part of a big a party of people who discuss and have a line on things? No, or, no, no, he's not. He's a, a person who calls himself a socialist. For example, he's got no consistent or principled position against US, uh, US imperialism. He calls himself a socialist. But his military and foreign policy remains in line with corporate capitalism, militarism and imperialism. Over the various years, a number of socialist groups have pursued different strategies to build a radical political party in the United States. Some parties, like the Communist Party and the Committees for Correspondence and various Maoist groups, have historically worked in the Democratic Party and they see no problem with that. We do, because it's like working in the Labour Party at the moment. You will fail. Even worse, possibly. It is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I had 14 years in the Labour Party and uh, I can tell you that's a complete waste At of time. At least they have some connection to the unions, unlike the, well, structural connection to the unions, unlike the way the Democrats just get donations. And well, yes, but they take absolute zero notice of the interest of their members. Um, young DSA members, no, other younger people, however, no longer see realignment with the Democratic Party as the other way forward. Other socialist groups, including the Socialist Party of Australia and various Trotskyist groups, have been opposed to working in the Democratic Party, arguing correctly that the Democrats are the party of the banks and the corporations and that working people need their own party, which they do, and they do in this country. So that even if there is a left-wing development within the Labour Party in this country, which we can only hope will come... Uh, that um, that that doesn't take away the necessity to have a party that is independent of the Labour Party and can criticise it. Uh, in 1996 in America, the break with the Democrats, because it was a corporate party, was followed by uh, the union movement, which attempted to establish uh, a Labour Party. Now, uh, this staggered on. It... Uh, it had the problem of some people didn't want to take votes away from the Democratic Party. It would never actually run against the Democratic Party for fear of allowing the Republicans in. In other words, it was half-baked. And the party suspended operations in 2007. When that failed, some activists went on to join the Green Party that was formed in 1984. 
Of the far less groups, the International Socialist Organisation has been most critical of and hostile to the Sanders campaign, and for the right reasons. His carousing, his caucusing with the Democrats, his foreign policy, and the belief that Sanders will be an obstacle in building an independent left movement and political alternative. Now, they may prove right in the long run, but at the moment, all we can do is welcome the fact that there is movement against the neoliberals and that the, the, the floodgates are starting to open in America and England. And we should take great cheer by that. It really confirms the... I suppose the diagnosis that the sentiment is there, what you need is the inspiration and the organisation. Well, that's right, that's right. And uh, hopefully there will be some issue in the working class here that stirs people to, on the mass of the people, to see that they need a party that is not the Labour Party and not the Liberal Party, both of which are, are scurrilous uh, corporate parties. As uh, Sanders' followers will probably cast a vote for Hillary Clinton in the actual election. Um, they will do this not because Bernie Sanders has tricked them, but because they fear Republican reactionaries. We bring our viewpoint that while the Bernie Sanders campaign represents a fundamentally progressive development, um, it, it's, not far, it's only the first step. It's only the first step and a, an alternate mass party of the working class still needs to be built. So I thought that was slightly, some slightly good news mm. that we're hearing from there. Uh, it's 10.29, people. It's, uh, I hope that all made sense to you. Uh, please ring up uh, and have a chat to Kim and I on 94190155, 94190155. We don't actually have a producer yet, but I'm hoping that we'll... I think it's interesting <coughs> what you raised about the Black Lives Matter movement because if you think about the history of the labour movement in America, it's really you can't pull it apart from racism. Like I think there's quite a few people who uh, theorise that the, one of the what held back the establishment of a labour party mm. in the US was racism and the division of the working class along lines of race. Really. Yeah, well, that's one theory that I've heard. Um, so you can see how useful racism is to the ruling class in trying to divide the working class. Of course, there's been instances of, you know, the communists and et cetera um, organising workers together and mm -hmm, there's been solidarity mm -hmm. and all that. Um, but they rely on that everywhere, don't they, Yeah, racism. everywhere, yeah. I mean, here it's the Muslims or the refugees or anybody. <laughs> yeah. Anybody, um the other thing is that um, there's an article, just while we're waiting for a producer to uh, turn up, um, there's an, uh, an article in The Nation by uh, Klein, Naomi Klein, who apparently is coming to Australia soon. It's exciting. Yes. And uh, she's explaining why the modern conservative, like people like Tony Abb, are terrified silly by the prospect of confronting human created climate change. Now, why are they frightened of that? It's not just simply because they love coal. Uh, it's because if you accept the climate change argument, it breaks every rule in the free market playbook. Um, that is, the need to rebuild the public sphere, reverse privatisations, relocalise large parts of the economy, 
scale back consumption, bring back long-term planning, heavily regulate and tax corporations, maybe even nationalise some of them, cut military spending and recognise our, our debts to the global south. So all those things, of course, are totally anathema to your Tony Abbott's of this world. So when they are taking action against, you know, against uh, renewable energy mm. and, you know, saying, you know, uh, windmills look bad or all that rubbish, it's not just that they're in the hands of the coal thing. It's because once you accept the premises of climate change, you're really accepting that market, market capitalism has caused this problem mm. and that the answer is not more market capitalism. It's a retreat from market capitalism. Now, that's unacceptable to the Tonys. As well, I think you think about imperialism because if you think of the what was the Copenhagen uh, summit or whatever, they had all these uh, you know global north western industrialized countries basically saying that you know there was you know China and India had to tighten their belts. But the reason that they're emitting so much at the moment is that they've gone through industrialization later, and a lot of that has to do with imperialism. Yes, of course, of course. So it feeds into everything. I think as well there's. There's also kind of an ideological thing that the ruling class, you know, those it's the dirty poor people who take public transport, which is much more efficient and much better for the environment, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, they take their helicopters and their limousines <laughs> yes, and their yes, yes. Rolls Royces or whatever. Yes, that's right. That's right. I know. Oh, the poor, they're such a pain in the ass, aren't they? Yes, and it's all individualised There's so as many well. of them too. Yeah. <laughs> all right, people... Uh, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.